Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. On today's episode, Scott and I continue our series, A Time to Politic, within which we have been examining the politics of the New Testament from Jesus of Nazareth to John of Patmos. And today, Scott and I continue in looking at the letters of Paul by looking at letters to his delegates, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Scott, uh, welcome back. Well, welcome back to you, too. Good to be with you and uh, good to talk about a time to politic. Yeah, it's a, it is a time to politic indeed. Scott, let's come back again as we begin to sort of the reason for this series. Why are we talking about the politics of the New Testament? Well, in part because this is a, the, a, this is the um, return to our endless uh, election cycles in the United States. I mean, it just never stops. I don't know if it's that way in Canada, but uh, I just, it, it's like they can give them one, maybe one and a half years of reprieve, and then we got to start talking about who's going to run for the next election. It's presidential stuff. And uh, whether Trump's going to run or whether Biden's going to run, and uh, it's just one thing after another. And I just thought it would be a good time for us to, to pause to look at how the early Christians reflected on, let's say, the church and the state, although I just read a book that doesn't think Rome had a state the same way that uh, we do, because um, they didn't have really government offices in Rome. It was, it, was all, it was like a free-for-all in the forum in the days of, uh, of the Republic. So, um, but, but I also think the New Testament in many ways only offers us snippets of reflection rather than mm-hmm. a theory. Yeah, Clearly there's not a theory uh, in the sense of developed the way, let's say, soteriology or uh, ethics are developed in, in the Sermon on the Mount. So we begin, I, I think, with statements by Jesus who offered, I mean, one of his most important statements is a, is little more than a, it's, it is it's a riddle. Mm-hmm. So I'm not diminishing it by saying a little more than a riddle, but the point is, um, <clears throat> give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God's what is God, to God what is God's is is a really clever statement. But uh, what exactly did he mean by that? And the riddle-like nature of it um, created the necessary uh, pondering by the people who heard it, and then. Um, in the book of Acts, we find some witnesses to the power that it didn't matter that they told them that they couldn't be talking about Jesus as the Messiah or that he had been raised from the dead or that the Jewish leaders or Roman leaders, whoever they want to blame, killed him, killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead, which is an indictment of certain kinds of governmental powers. Uh, then Paul uh, has just a very powerful statement in Romans 13, but most of us know that it couldn't have been totally adequate for Paul to have said what he said, that, you know, and basically just be good, just do whatever the government tells you to do, submit, (laughs) you know, you think, oh no, that's not how Paul operated. And if they'd have told him he couldn't witness to Jesus, he would have told him to jump off the next, uh, at the next corner. 
<laughs> and then in Colossians 1 and Philippians 2, which we looked at last time, we have um, a powerful, pregnant statement that has political implications. Um, but it, it is political in the sense that Jesus is the Lord and that the believer is to live with Jesus under Jesus as the Lord, that the, this is the all-compassing Lord of all of life. And that's their responsibility, to live under him. And that has implications for how they lived in the Roman Empire. So these are some of the snippets into yeah. early Christian pondering, thinking, practicing uh, the life of, of a Christian in an empire. And... Um, the New Testament never does come to some kind of final climactic act. And one of the most significant things is the Christian, the New Testament, is not written when Christians have the upper hand in mm -hmm. government, which they will have 400 years or so, 300 years later under Constantine, and then toward the end of the fourth century is when it really takes hold. And then all of a sudden, I think things shift and change. and different principles come into play. And that's why I think we need to ponder a time to politic uh, in our uh, in our situation today is there are different there are different themes that matter at different times. Mm -hmm. And ours is the task. Ours is the challenge to make the right decision at the right time in a political situation. So there yeah, there go. is there is sort of an acute uh, political polarization that exists right now. Um, before we get into these letters to Paul's delegates, I was just thinking as you were chatting, like in your, you know, 40 years of, of teaching uh, the New Testament, uh, being a professor, um, do you feel as though it's ebbed and flowed in terms of the importance of talking about politics? Do you feel like there's something unique about this moment in time in distinction from your 40 years of teaching? Or would you say that it's it's popped its head up at various times? I think we always have to factor in the fact that the factor in the the reality that we have social media today, of course, and we have internet, and we have twenty four seven news that has shifted our awareness of political intensity. But I don't think people are any more politically intense today than they ever have been. Yeah. Um, I can go back 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, not my own life, and read read things from those days where people were really hot and heavy onto mm -hmm. some political candidate. And if you read the history of uh, even religious rhetoric about politics in the United States, you will discover that from Thomas Jefferson on, it was apocalyptic. Mm. And uh, there is a book called Prophecies of Godlessness that uh, is a history of political rhetoric in the United States by politicians and leaders and ministers that demonstrates that Americans have, al have always had the capacity to ramp up the next election as the most significant. If we don't make the right decision, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket and we're gonna go with it. We're gonna be swirled in the chaos of an oceanic flood. Uh, this, this has been this has been a characteristic of political discourse. So no, I don't think I don't think it's any worse, but it's more intense because of the news media 
Um, and it seems to me uh, that there's, in my lifetime, you asked about that, there's an ebb and flow. When I was a child, when John F. Kennedy was running for president, um, there was concern in my church that John F. Kennedy was a Catholic and that this would mean he would be listening to the Pope and the Pope would be running the United States. Wow. Uh, what I didn't know is that my mom and dad, who were very strong fundamentalist Baptists, voted for Kennedy because my mm. father was a public school teacher and public school teachers supported Democrat candidates who, who supported the unions, mm. the union of teachers. So my father and mother, I did not really know this until in their 80s that they said they had always voted Democrat. <laughs> so, um, but Kennedy, that was a big one. I think it really took off under Reagan. Hmm. Reagan's policies were a step in the in a very rightward direction. Hmm. Um, then Clinton came in, followed two terms for Reagan, one year, one term for Bush, the father, and then Clinton came in, and and it seemed like for some Republicans, um, conservative evangelical alignment with that party became, uh, you know, that it was it was going everything was going downhill and i often say this i don't know if a sociologist or a historian who's proven this but uh that was the day when jerry jenkins left behind series uh became popular under clinton hmm. because i think there were a lot of people who wondered if the you know armageddon was coming wow. under a president so liberal as bill clinton who's hmm. now who now is more conservative probably than even uh, some of the Republicans today. So um, then uh, George W. Bush, I thought, was fairly moderate. I, I don't get into politics like this very often. Um, but to, but under Donald Trump, it just seemed everything yeah. became more intense. Yeah. And uh, when Donald Trump won, I noticed at Northern among my students who were ministers, I noticed in our church among the, what I called at that time, the skinny jeans generation, they were uh, overwhelmed with sadness that our country could have such a president. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, in four years, it's gonna change. Or in eight years, it's gonna change. And that's what I think we have to keep in mind is that there's an ebb and flow about who wins. And, you know, they one group leads us a little this way and a, another group leads us a little that way. In the end, we just keep going back and forth. You take the average, we've been staying right in the middle there. It's been a pretty mild political direction. So, um, but I do think that our current situation has a polarization that uh, has come to the fore in a way that we've never seen, but I don't think that polarization is any different than it has always been. One thing that we, that many evangelicals have experienced in the United States is that in church, you don't talk about politics. You keep politics to yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, I think during the Reagan era that started going public mm -hmm. and it's now very, very public stuff. And I think the church has lost some of its witness because it is so partisan, 
in its orientation that its moral voice lacks clarity. Hmm. Because if you start saying, I mean, today, if you were to make a statement, I'm against abortion, people would say, oh, you're a Republican. Hmm. Or I'm against war, oh, you're a Democrat. I think 50 years ago, if you would have said that, people would not have immediately connected you with a party. So, all right. That's that helpful. Kind of Let's, um, uh, you spent several years. How many years did you work on your commentary that's coming out this next year with Cambridge on the pastoral epistles? Uh, probably four years at different times and sometimes very intense, like that's what I worked on constantly. And other times I was doing other things and Justin Gill was working on it. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Justin Gill and I were gonna be the co-authors. Mm. I had gotten approval for this. And then toward the end, well, in the last year or two, I was, um, I was told that because he doesn't have a PhD, he can't be a co-author with Cambridge University Press in that series. So I gave him a lot of props in the introduction, uh, but uh, they would not let his name be put on the, on the cover. So some of the work that he did, I had to uh, revise as, to my, uh, as my own, but uh, it, it is truly in some ways, a, uh, I'm responsible for almost in the entire prose of the commentary. Justin made suggestions he read literature, he made suggestions from that literature, um, but he, and so he made contributions, but um, I revised everything so that it was my prose. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, you know, I, I admit um, that, uh, that we worked on this together and sometimes yeah. he was doing things and I wasn't. So mm -hmm. I think it was about four years. Okay. And I was pretty slow at getting the final edits done because of other obligations and deadlines that I had. And I just thought, I, I can't do this right now. So. Yeah. so we're jumping into Paul's first letter to Timothy then, uh, yeah. filled with lots of unique uh, materials. Talk to us a little bit about the first letter to Timothy. What's what's going on here in this letter, uh, Paul's writing to his uh, young friend, ministry laborer, his son, Timothy. Uh, kind of set up this letter for us before we get into some key sections. Yeah. I don't know how old he was. I also think... Uh, yeah, he was, he was, he was, Paul was his mentor, but I, he was also his co-author. Mm -hmm. And uh, Timothy has a lot, I have a lot of respect for Timothy. And I'd like to know what letter, what lines he wrote and what lines Paul wrote and what line, you know, and, and I don't think Paul wrote physically. Um, maybe Timothy could write physically like that. But it, at any rate, I think there's a lot of connection here. Uh, to Timothy, and I think we not not this that, that not that he wrote this letter, but that Timothy has written other of Paul's letters. But um, there's a lot of intensity with with uh, opponents of the gospel mm -hmm. in Ephesus in this letter, and some of it's pretty strong language. And there's critiques, say, of Hymenaeus, Humanaeus, and Alexandros whom I gave over to the Satanas, so that they might be disciplined not to insult God. That's pretty strong language. And he's, he's really critical of apparently some uh, Jewish 
influences, uh, and what I mean by that, people who believed in observance of the Torah, probably for believers, and uh, accepting other things. So there's tension there, and there's tension with some widows in this letter. Uh, there's tension with some young women, I think, uh, who are traveling around in this letter. And in the new co the new work by uh, Sandra Glahn, uh, I think we probably got to see a little bit of Artemis uh, at work at times in this. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the letter that Paul doesn't seem to address. Well, some of it, but most of it, he doesn't address directly. Mm -hmm. So you just have to, okay, that's, let's see what we got here. So um, I just found a formatting thing that I think needs to change in my translation. It's kind of odd. Uh, maybe not. Okay. At any rate, um, one of the more interesting things that, uh, that I learned in working on this commentary. Oh, and also there's the, of course, the directions for elders, bishops, um, and their, and those people connected to them. I think that's pretty, pretty significant. And you know a lot more about this. And of course, there's the huge discussion about women. Yeah. In, in this letter. So this letter has a lot of stuff going on. But one of the things that uh, I came upon when I was working on pastorals is an amazing book by uh, a Native American scholar by the name of Christopher Hockla Tubby. And he has a book called Civilized Piety. And it's stunning in its clarity and its significance in its discussion of the Greek word eusebeia, which is normally translated godliness. And uh, I've not only written the more academic commentary for Cambridge University Press, but I have a little every every man, what's it called? Every, uh, everyday Bible, Bible series. For, uh, everyday Bible series on the pastorals. And where I developed this just a little bit more completely for ordinary people to read. Um, here, here's the concern. Eusebia is usually translated in most of our English translations with the word godliness. Now, I don't know what you think about the word godliness, but I can tell you for me, it pertains to a more narrow individualistic yeah. personal holiness yeah, like acting God-like would be probably the way people would think about it. Yes, but I think people, here, here's what I have in mind. The people who like the word godly today, godliness, love the Puritans. And it's sort of about, and they love a strong version of Reformed theology. It's about sanctification. It's about personal holiness. It's about avoiding sins in the classic sense. And I am, I think Christopher Hawkletubby Hock, has proven, and his name is not easy to pronounce. I had to write to him to find out exactly how he pronounces it. Hawkletubby. Um, I think that he has proven that this word is the Christian equivalent in Greek of the Latin pietas. And pietas in the Roman world, I'm going to read a quotation from 
Hakutabi's summary. Within imperial ideology, he says, pietas, what we would translate piety, signified a loyal devotion to the gods, that's the gods of Rome, the nation and family, which coalesced with Augustus's vision of restoring Rome's ancestral traditions and values and its moral grounding. Rome's citizens and provincial subjects were conceptualized as an enlarged familia that owed due pietas to Augustus, the father of the nation. And it was deemed to mark Romans out from the rest of the world. And it has this sense then when Paul is telling believers to be characterized by eusebia, he's using their term for Christian practice in such a way that the public would think of Christians as participating in a socially respectable way in society. In other words, Eusebia, I think, should be translated, and, I, and we translate this in, uh, in, in my Second Testament, uh, in a sense of social respectability, civilized religion, civilized piety. And that is, it's the kind of religious practices that makes people think that you are a good citizen in society. Now, this is similar to First Peter, of course, and, and we'll talk about that sometime. But this really is a different strategy than you find, say, in Revelation or the riddle-like statement of Jesus. And it's different than Paul, say, in Colossians and Philippians 2, Colossians 1, where it's, a, it's this cosmic structure that God, that Jesus Christ is the Lord. I think Paul, I think Paul's behind the pastoral epistles. But at this point, there's almost a strategy in Ephesus. You know, if we're gonna, if we're gonna survive, it could be a survival tactic. We're going to have to learn to practice our religion in a way that draws respect in the community of Ephesus. Rather than being a bunch of pain in the butts, we're going to have to have something socially respectable. Okay. Yeah. That's, That's really the helpful. general pick. And I just wonder what you think of this now that you're a specialist in the pastor and first yeah Timothy. i i like it so i think for our listeners let me let's give some context let me read a few texts out of the second testament yeah. for people to really hear how frequently even in this letter uh the apostle is using this language so first uh, timothy chapter 2 verse 1 therefore i encourage first of all that requests prayers intercessions and thanks be made for all humans for kings and all in high status, so that we may lead a quiet and gentle life in all civilized piety and respect. We'll come back to that. Chapter 3, verse 14, again, I write these matters to you, hoping to come to you quickly. If I delay, I write these matters to you so that you may know how it's necessary to behave in God's house, which is the living assembly, a truth's pillar and support, in open agreement... Great is civilized piety's secret. Chapter 4, now verses 6 to 10. Laying these things down before the siblings, 
you will be a beautiful servant of Christos Jesus, being nourished by the faith's words and the beautiful teachings that you've closely followed. Request an absence from populist and old woman myths. Exercise yourself towards civilized piety, for embodied exercise is profit for a little, but civilized piety is a profit for everything. Again, there are more examples, but but these few here, yeah. uh, where uh, these are just a couple in the pastorals where we see this language occur again and again and again. But maybe let's come back to that first instance because it's it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Where Paul is saying uh, he's he sort of laid out the grounds of the letter, as you well know. Uh, Timothy, I'm going to Macedonia. I'm going to leave you in Ephesus. We need to put some things back in order because there is some other teaching that's emerged here. And Paul comes to the sort of climax of that section with Alexander and Hymenaeus. And then here is the first sort of direct instruction of the letter. I, I want you to make prayers and intercessions for all humans. But now look, for kings and people of high status, so that we may live a quiet and gentle life in all civilized piety. That we may have a a respectable, civilized religion that uh, others look upon uh, in a way that it's non-threatening, it doesn't look seditious to others, it it, it looks respectable, so to speak. So I I think Hoklatubi's work is, is very instructive on this front. And I think that for for Paul, it seems, there is a degree to which, I don't know how this lands for you, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of, it's a sly civility whereby uh, they're, they're, uh, they're making their way of life respectable to those of Rome. So it's almost like a, a Christian way in Roman dress in the sense of post-colonial studies would invite us to consider maybe what it's like for a minority community to survive. As you mentioned, maybe yeah. there's there's threat. People are looking upon them in a way where they don't know if they're for them or against them, if they're for the empire or against the empire. And I do think the apostle invites them in Ephesus to a kind of sly, civilized, and respectable civility. You know, um, Hoklatubi, uh uses that expression, sly civility. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first time I saw it, but I think someone else has written an article called Sly Civility. And there is a sense in which this is a strategy. Yes. This isn't capitulation to, uh, let's say, Roman pietas, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. It is rather a strategy for believers, but it is a strategy uh, that emerges from pretty serious reflection and experiential religion, yeah. experiential life in Ephesus. How are we going to live as Christian believers in Jesus Christ as king? Uh, when we have to live in an empire. And one of the strategies that early Christians developed, I think, in First Timothy and the pastorals in general, is this sense of respectable religion or civilized piety yeah. that will, in a sense, what you just said was interesting. It's Christianity in Roman dress. I got that phrase sort of. from, from John Barclay. He has an article about Josephus in talking about Josephus presenting uh, his way of the, the Judean way of life in Roman dress. And I, mm. I found that to be pretty instructive in terms of what's happening here also. You know, John thinks uh, Paul in his household regulations capitulated hmm. in a sense to, uh, it's just too, it's given in too much to Aristotle or how, how, whoever you want to blame it on. 
of the household groups. Interesting. And um, and there's a sense in which I think we we need to give that view some respect. Is this is what Paul is what Paul is advocating here a little too much? Hmm. Um, and will it be satisfactory? And and one of the things that we we clearly have to do is as historians is to recognize that yes uh this was a strategy it was a strategy in a very specific context and yeah. we're not in that context anymore Correct. and and when when john writes revelation he clearly is not in that context yeah it's true he's not advocating for sly civility or um he's he's for uh you know letting it rip yeah yeah of course uh, so and we, um, we will we will get to Revelation uh, in some episodes from now, but directly related to what we're talking about here, Scott, um, speak to me because uh, the the sly civility or the civilized piety it doesn't seem to be in this letter just because of pressures from the outside. It seems like the household of God itself is in disarray from the inside, possibly, and that that is part of the concern of what's going to corrupt their public witness. I, I agree totally is that there is that that's a good observation is that uh, is that they the last thing they need to be doing is getting in fights with one another and uh, staining the gospel with internecine battles and even in a sense it's hard it's hard to see this in Paul it's hard to accept that he actually goes along with this here even in how he he goes to battle with Judaism or Jews in his environment, I think Paul is battling with Jewish Christians or Christians or Jews who claim to be Christians rather than Jews in general. Correct. Um, but if the, to the degree that he's battling with them, if that spills out into the streets or in mm-hmm. households and other people hear about it, then we got problems. And if yeah. Jews start going to the authorities, you know, in Ephesus, and you've been there, you know uh, where they would have been camped out at the top at the top of that hill. There would have been some administrative offices up there that they would have been dealing with. Hmm. Um, is This is not going to go well for the Christians. They needed to be very careful. And I think this Greek word eusebeia is one of Paul's strategies, and it, yeah. it occurs a number of times. It's one of Paul's, it's, it's maybe his most significant strategy in 1 Timothy for how believers are to live in Ephesus in a way that is socially respectable so that we don't bring disrepute to the gospel and to the church and we'll be left alone so that we can eventually take over. Yeah, 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 yeah. That sort yeah, of I um, well, I want to talk about character in a minute as we kind of uh, end our time, but I do think that there's something really interesting and significant about that, which is uh, Paul is talking about um, a respectable religion, a civilized piety in Ephesus in the midst of the empire, but most of the problems, not unlike our context today, it feels like are are uh, spilling out, to use your turn of phrase, from the church onto the streets, like. Our, our corrupted witness or our inability to hold on to that civilized religion uh, 
it's a problem that our house is not in order, right? I mean, yeah, the primary yeah. metaphor of this letter, which is kind of uncommon for Paul, is that uh, it's about the God's arrangement within the household of faith, God's household management, so to speak. And one of the yeah. ways that Paul conceptualizes that household management is by having uh, overseers and assistants or bishops and deacons, uh, which he talks about in chapter three, which are all about character. So talk to me about uh, these uh, sort of figures that Paul sort of establishes here uh, in Ephesus in order to help preserve the character of the community, but but in order to preserve the character of the community, he's looking for good character in, in the leaders in the community. Talk to me about that. Uh, okay, I'll read. I'll Please. read and then ask your comments because you know more about this than I do. This word is allegiant or trustworthy. 3-1, if someone aspires to a mentorship, now, I use this my translation for uh, episkopos, and that that's a translate is normally translated bishop or uh, overseer, and that's exactly what the Greek word means to look over on one. If someone aspires to a mentorship, the person desires a beautiful work. Therefore, it's necessary for the mentor to be above reproach, and then. The apostle lists just, and I, I give it as a list in my translation, yeah, a string of things. Yeah, 14. How of many? Them. 14. 14 of them. Okay. And Cody, you are writing a PhD on the connection between Paul's listing of, let's say, character and character under, character studies in the ancient Greek world. Mm -hmm. And um, I am one who knew that this deserved some emphasis and i was stunned in the standard commentaries that nobody talks about character yeah in a significant way and they nor do they really interact with say aristotle or theophrastus and and you can give us a brief introduction to uh the significance of character in let's say first timothy 3 or in in this letter in general and to character understanding in the ancient world. So yeah, I um, I'll just say a couple of things about the text, and then I'll bounce back to you. I think that uh, Paul is there's clearly an issue where the household of God is in disarray, like we were just talking about, and I Paul needs people of uh, character. I mean, whether or not um, uh, Paul Paul has uh, already. Uh, passed away, and now we have a post-Pauline author, or this is Paul himself, I think one of the things we recognize is as, as the future of the church is on the horizon, one of the things that, that needs to be thought about is we need silhouettes to be filled, right? We need, we need sketches of the kind of people who should fill these roles. Those who are, are types or models is, is frequent language in the pastorals for those who should be in these positions. I guess I would say, to, to borrow a metaphor from the Hebrew Bible, we need a kind of plumb line whereby we can adjudicate who should be in these types of positions, uh, who, those who will preserve the healthy teaching. And, and even there, I think that's a, a big thing for Paul, is that as these opponents arise and these other teachings emerge more and more frequently, I think Paul is concerned about the preservation of the gospel. And so, yeah, Paul says, if anyone desire, aspires to an overseer or to be a mentor, uh, they, they desire or aspire to an excellent work. It's, it's a great thing to want to be in these positions. And then he, he says that uh, it's necessary for the mentor to be, which I make a big deal about. I think Paul does something similar in his vice list in 1 Corinthians 6, 
a 9 to 11 where he's, this is what you were, but you are no longer this. So the kind of person that Paul's looking for is someone who is above, above criticism. And I think we share a view here where I see this as a bit of a heading. Above criticism is, is the heading and the, the character description sort of follows that. But I'll say that I think it's fascinating for Paul that he's looking for someone both in the church and outside of the church who is uh, above reproach, we often translate it. But I think he's concerned, again, about public witness, about civilized piety. So he needs mm-hmm. someone who is above that kind of criticism, uh, who can fall into the category of someone who is a one-woman man, who is moderate, hospitable, you know, teachable, not addicted to wine, not a bully, but gentle. And so I think overall here, Paul's not simply trying to offer us a list that we check off. <laughs> uh, Benjamin Merkel has written uh, an article on this where it's, these are socially positioned traits. Th- this is not a an all-time list of exactly what we have to check off in order for someone to be in this role or position. I think overall Paul's saying this is the type of person who should uh, stand in this position within the household of God. And so, yeah, I, I think it's a, a composite sketch. I don't think that we should think simply about bundles of virtues that we should acquire, but we should look for people who have, over time, uh, learned to practice the virtues virtuously and who have good and solid character. And I know you've written extensively on character too, Scott, so maybe I'll, I'll kick back to you on this one. How does all well, that who, sound to who you? Did, who did you just say read, wrote an article? Who was it? I think it was Ben Merkel. If that's how you ben say his Merkle. name. Um, I've often, I mean, I've been in a lot of churches yeah. that use this as a checklist. Yeah. Qualifications for elders. We're going to be biblical. This is what they have to be able to do. Well, a one-woman man, you know, this is, uh, we may not have to include that one because we've right. got a lot of divorced people in our church. So, so what, do, what, do, what does this mean? Well, it's got to mean polygamy because that'll get us all off the hook and we don't have polygamy. <laughs> and if it is polygamy, which is entirely a possibility, uh, then it has nothing to do with us today. I mean, we, we don't even need to record that. But I really like what you're saying. And this is something that I've, uh, I've, I've developed a little bit, but not to the level that you're going to be working on it. And that is, these are sort of symptoms mm-hmm. of people in the first century who who line up with Paul's vision of the kind of character needed to be a mentor in a church. Yep. Um, sim- these are the things they look like. It's not that we need to practice these things or all do all of these. These are not requirements. Yeah. Uh, this is not a checklist. This is, in Paul's world, what a good Christian mentor would look like. Yes. Now, we might add different things. I mean, let, let's just face this. I would say that a person who is a mentor in a church today needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not in there. Yeah. Right? And I think they need to follow Jesus. And that's not in there. I mean, I would use some other terms that are more evocative in our churches, but that's not because I think Paul got it wrong or that he no, was yeah. narrow-minded. It's that he's doing something here that needs to be put in its context, and that is, um, in a sense, talking about the character traits of a person with virtue. Yes. And this is what Theophrastus does, as you know. Um, he kind of goes through in humorous ways, 
crazy character, crazy characters in the in the ancient world. And um, there is a little book by a guy by a, a guy with the last name of Koopman, K O O P M A N, mm-hmm. called Ecclesiastical Bird Watching. Did I tell you about this? Book I think you did. Seen? Yeah, and it's sort of a. It just talks about the different people in the choir and different kinds of preachers, and it's it's really funny. But it's a lot like Theophrastus. Yeah. In Theophrastus's character uh, sketches are at times pretty funny, mm-hmm. and and biting and sarcastic, and uh, Paul is not that. But Paul is giving the sorts of character the people of character look like this. And I think, it's more important to know what character is than it is look like this. Yeah, these have a kind of public propaganda value for the church, that if these are the yeah, kinds of people good. that uh, are in these positions of episcopos and diaconos, overseers and assistants, uh, in the church context, then I do think it contributes to exactly what we've been talking about, which is civilized piety, a respectable religion, a way of life uh, that is strategic in its own sense, and in order for that to be possible, we need the kind of people. And Scott, you know, you know, Pivot just came out. Uh, the Church called Tove. You know, you've also written on this extensively. What what the church needed in the first century, in this sense, is not dissimilar to what it needs now, which it needs men and women of solid character who are able to uh, contribute to the ordering of the household of God in such a way that. Uh, we present ourselves as great contributing citizens in our cities and in our countries and that we represent the gospel well in that sense. And I do think that that yeah. is a key concern of Paul. And I do think these lists in that sense then are very political because the church's witness is public. There's no, it's not private here. Yeah. And Good. so Paul has deep concern. Uh, any last words on this? Well, no, I think that this is, it's a really good way to see these this famous passage in First Timothy chapter three, and it will show up in Titus, um, in a different way. Um, it's a really good word to say this. These are illustrations of leaders who can guide us into civilized piety mm-hmm. as a group, as a congregation, or as congregations. So, I uh, I really applaud the work that you're doing, and I know we're going to all benefit from it. So. Well, friends, you've been uh, listening to the Kingdom Roots podcast where Scott and I are uh, talking about how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now as we spent a little bit of time thinking about civilized piety together, ordering ourselves with the household of God and the character that's required if we are going to live with sly civility. Uh, Join us again next time as we carry forward in our series on the politics of the New Testament.